Jessie Clifton was only 11 years old when life as she knew it changed forever. Her family of four became a family of three in 1998 when her eight-year-old sister was tragically killed. Jessie didn't merely just lose a little sister, she lost her best friend. But it wasn't the only loss she would experience. Everyone's life in the Clifton home changed, but things in the home were finally becoming the new normal. Unfortunately, when she was 14, the stress and overwhelming sadness that comes from losing a child became too much for Jessie's parents, leading the high school sweethearts to divorce. Sheila Clifton, Jessie's mother, was haunted by the house across the street, choosing to move in with her mother. Now only two remained in the Clifton household. The disappearance of Maddie brought the Lakewood community together. Something about the little girl resonated with everyone. She could have been any of their children. Hundreds of volunteers combed through Jacksonville, Florida, passing out flyers, waving down drivers at busy intersections, and working tirelessly to bring her home. Over the next seven days, Jacksonville would be consumed with police, reporters, and volunteers, all there to help bring the eight-year-old home. The National Guard was even called in to help search the sewers for the missing little girl. On November 10, 1998, Steve and Sheila Clifton just finished filming an interview with a national news morning program when Missy Phillip, their neighbor, came running across the street to alert some officers. She had just discovered Maddie Clifton. It would not take long for the nation to hear the most brutal and tragic story about Maddie Clifton's final moments and how her friend and neighbor took it all away. Welcome to another episode of Crimson Sin with Tamsin Lee. I am your host, Tamsin Lee. Full show notes and sources can be found at tamsinleecrimsonsin.podbean.com and you can also find it in the description. I think this case actually woke me up to how evil some people in this world can truly be. I can still remember my mom watching this on the news when Maddie Clifton's body was discovered and I was about the same age as her at the time, so it just instilled this fear of neighbors and strangers in me. Like, after hearing about this, I had this fear that the same could happen to me. It became sort of like a cautionary tale, especially since there was a teenage boy living across the street from me. I just had this irrational fear that if I was playing outside when he was out, then what happened to Maddie could happen to me. It may have been irrational and a kid just being a kid, but for some reason I remember lying awake at night thinking about Maddie Clifton and just feeling so scared of what is in some people's hearts. But it also probably didn't help that while at school the teachers played these Stranger Danger videos constantly that really scared the bejesus out of me. I think it was one of those cases that also made me realize that a killer comes in many shapes and forms. I wasn't interested in true crime back then, obviously, but even in movies, the murderer was always some old creepy dude, not your everyday next-door teenager. So today's case is about 8-year-old Maddie Clifton from Jacksonville, Florida. 
The unfortunate events that happened to Maddie occurred on November 3rd, 1998, and is still something that is hard for everyone to wrap their minds around. When this crime was committed, it was before the tragic events of Columbine and such, so it was a gripping national news at the time. I can definitely vouch that parents certainly kept a closer eye on their children after hearing Maddie Clifton's story. Madeline Ray Clifton was born on June 17, 1990 in Jacksonville, Florida to Steve and Sheila Clifton. Maddie also had an older sister named Jessie. Jessie described her little sister as her best friend, the one who would root for the underdog. She would play piano and loved playing sport. Maddie loved life and did not like people feeling lonely or isolated. On November 3, 1998, Maddie arrived home from school at about 4.30 p.m., practiced her piano, and then went outside to play. As it was the late 90s, there was still this false sense of security within communities. While most neighborhood children were told or scarred from school videos detailing the dangers of strangers, no one really believed someone that they thought they knew, someone who was their neighbor, could be capable of such horrendous acts. Especially not one who was still a child themselves. So after practicing piano, Maddie went outside to play, first going to a 16-year-old neighbor's yard before returning to her own. This neighbor's grandmother noticed Maddie in her own driveway when she described Josh Phillips creeping up on her. The behavior caught her interest as it seemed unusual, so she stood and watched for a moment. When nothing really came from the odd behavior, she just went on about her business, believing that what she witnessed was nothing more than kids playing. But according to Josh, Maddie was the one that knocked on his door to play that day. Joshua Phillips was born on March 17, 1984 in Allentown, Pennsylvania to Steve and Melissa Phillips. The family of three moved to Florida, leaving Josh's two half-siblings in Pennsylvania. The Phillips moved into a house across the street from the Cliftons in the early 1990s. Steve Phillips worked as a computer analyst and was described as being incredibly strict and violent toward his wife and son. He was also described as a drunk. Apparently, Steve also really didn't like it when other children were in the home without him being there, and would become even more enraged if he was drunk when he found out. According to Melissa and Josh, Steve held a particular dislike for little girls. 14-year-old Josh was alone in the house, and he knew his father would be furious if he allowed Maddie inside. In fact, his father forbade him to have little girls as friends, which I think we can all somewhat understand that. At 5.15 p.m., they were playing baseball together in his yard. By 6.20 p.m., Maddie's mother called for her two children to come eat dinner. When Maddie did not come, Mrs. Clifton started asking neighbors to help look for her daughter, but no one could find her. By 6.33 p.m., she called the police about her missing child. 
Several of the neighborhood children took part in the search for Maddie, including a freshly showered Josh, who had just been playing with her not even an hour before. The following day, detectives from Jacksonville Sheriff's Office spoke with Josh about Maddie. Just like all the Clifton's neighbors, he claimed that he had seen Maddie the day before, but did not play with her because of their age difference. Investigators searched the Phillips shed in Steve's car when he returned home from work. A few days later, another homicide detective went to the Phillips home when Josh was the only one there, interviewing him as he sat on his bed. As the detective asked Josh questions, he had no idea just how close to Maddie he truly was. Over the following week, the Cliftons could be seen on news programs giving interviews pleading for the safe return of their daughter. Hundreds of volunteers came to the neighborhood and surrounding area to join in the search and pass out flyers containing Maddie's picture. The volunteers were entirely invested in the search for Maddie. When I say this community gave their all in searching for the missing child, I mean they poured their hearts and souls into trying to find Maddie Clifton. The National Guard was even called on to help search the sewer systems in hopes of finding any sign of the missing 8-year-old girl. As time passed without any promising results, the FBI eventually became involved in the search also. A $100,000 reward was offered for anyone who could provide information that would lead to Maddie's return. On November 10th, 1998, Steve and Sheila Clifton were filming an interview for a national news morning show when their neighbor, Melissa Phillips, made a grim discovery. While Joshua was at school, Melissa went into her son's room and noticed a liquid on the floor near his bed. Suspecting that his waterbed must have been leaking, she started to take apart the frame to discover a little foot. Panic-stricken and crying, she ran out of her home, flagging down the officers that were still positioned in the neighborhood conducting interviews. Melissa pointed them into her son's bedroom, unwilling to go back inside, where officers were struck with a strong odor and witnessed two small feet with white socks sticking out from the bottom of Joshua's waterbed, along with liquid coming from underneath the bed and tape on the floor. The bedroom was immediately taped off as a crime scene. Maddie's body was found beaten, stabbed, and partially clothed with her t-shirt raised and laying on top of her bottoms. Her hand clutched on to the bracket of the bed frame, indicating that she was still alive when Josh shoved her under his waterbed. Investigators were shocked by the discovery because the Phillips residence had been searched three times, mistaking the smell of Maddie's decomposing body for a few of the birds the family kept as pets. Detectives searched Josh's room where they discovered several different types of air fresheners and incense, rolls of tape, a baseball bat hidden behind his dresser, and a pocket knife. 
As the search of Josh's room was conducted, an officer drove to the A. Philip Randolph Academies of Technology to arrest the C-average ninth grader. In front of fellow classmates, Josh Phillips was handcuffed and charged with first-degree murder. No one could believe it. Everyone was in shock. Neighbors described Josh as a quiet and friendly person. Sheila Clifton even stated that Maddie and Josh were friends. She never had any reason to be afraid of him. Josh's teacher even stated that he was just this goofy, lovable kid. So what happened? As word spread of Maddie's body possibly being found, impromptu prayer circles were formed by volunteers and well-wishers in Maddie's honor. Jacksonville Sheriff Nat Glover held a press conference announcing that Maddie's body had been discovered under the waterbed of her 14-year-old neighbor by his mother. When news broke of the discovery of Maddie's body, the entire community fell solemn as their worst fears had been realized. Everyone just knew they were going to find the little girl alive and well. But she was across the street the entire time, with her murderer sleeping above her for seven days. Almost immediately, the community started leaving flowers and little stuffed animals near the Clifton home in honor of Maddie. The entire community pulled together to show their condolences and support for the Clifton family with this devastating news. Volunteers could be seen returning the missing person flyers and flowers to the residents at the request of the Clifton family. Maddie Clifton's funeral was held on November 14, 1998, where numerous people from the community paid their respects and shared their support for the grieving family. Hundreds gathered along the side of San Jose Boulevard to watch the funeral procession. Businesses had signs stating, Goodbye, Maddie, and God bless you, Maddie. While the circumstances are tragic, Seeing how this community pulled together and grieved for the eight-year-old girl was beautiful to see. It goes to show that even though there is a lot of evil in this world, humanity can pull together in the darkness. However, the whole ordeal was far from over as many questions remained. After arresting Joshua on November 10th, he confessed to murdering Maddie. He claimed that they were playing baseball in his yard on November 3rd at 5.15 p.m. when he hit the ball very hard, striking Maddie near her left eye. He stated that she began to scream and cry from the pain. Knowing his father would be home from work at any minute, he grew scared as he knew he was not allowed to have friends over when neither of his parents were home especially not a little girl. That's when Josh decides to drag her into his home. In the process of dragging her up the stairs and into his bedroom, he claimed her shorts and underwear fell off. 
Once they made it to Josh's bedroom, he claimed that Maddie was bleeding from the gash on her eye and continued crying loudly. In an attempt to prevent his father from discovering that Maddie was there, he stated that he struck Maddie in the head one or two times with his baseball bat. He explained that Maddie whimpered, then began moaning loudly. So, he took his pocket knife and slit her throat. Josh stated that he then pried off the side of his waterbed and shoved the eight-year-old underneath. By this time, Josh's father had returned home. But as Josh was washing up, he realized that Maddie's labored breath could be heard from the other room. To keep his father from knowing of Maddie's presence in the home, he said he pulled her out from under his bed and stabbed her in the lungs to make her stop breathing. According to Josh, the sole purpose for his actions was him being afraid of getting into trouble with his father. I think I would much rather be in trouble with my dad than taking someone's life. Even though his home life was not great with his father, Josh could survive his parents' punishment. The Cliftons cannot get their daughter back. And at that, his actions cost himself his future, and his parents lost their son. So the logic behind this, you could argue that it is based on naivety, but makes no sense. I understand not wanting to be in trouble with your parents. That was basically my number one goal when I was younger. I hated when my parents were mad or disappointed in me, but I think all of us have that gauge when we are like, yeah, I just need to come clean about this before it gets worse. If all of his actions were because he was afraid of being in trouble with his father, it seems like it would have been a lot more logical to bring Maddie home after she was hit in the face with the baseball. His father wasn't there and they lived right across the street. I doubt Maddie's parents would have been, you know, that furious about it. I mean, accidents happen. But it all depends on whether the incident with the baseball actually happened. During Maddie's autopsy, it was determined that she did not have injuries consistent with a baseball hitting her in the face. There was no sign of sexual assault. However, she did suffer three separate attacks, just like Josh pointed out in his interview. The state's medical expert testified that she was struck three times on her forehead and on the top of her head. These wounds would have been fatal roughly 30 minutes after being inflicted. The wounds to her neck perforated her windpipe, which caused her to either bleed to death or drown in her own blood. The final attack resulted in nine stab wounds to her chest and abdomen. Two of these wounds were inflicted when she was already dead. So many people were invested in this case in the Jacksonville area that the judge ordered the trial to take place halfway across the state to ensure Joshua Phillips received a fair trial. 
It was also reported that due to the heinous crime, he would be tried as an adult. The highly publicized case started on July 6, 1999, and lasted only two days. Jurors listened to the gruesome details that Maddie endured that day. The prosecution told the jury that the version of events Joshua described was unlikely and indicated that the crime could have been sexually motivated. The prosecution furthered that there was no blood found on the ball or in the yard to support Josh's claim that Maddie was struck outside. There was also no dirt found on Maddie's body or clothing to support Josh's claim that he dragged her. The prosecution continued their argument that this attack was sexual in nature as it was claimed that Josh had previously spoken to Maddie and her sister about sex. The defense did not provide an opening statement, waiting to make their case at the end of the trial. Instead, they immediately sought a motion to drop the murder charge for an acquittal. The judge refused this request. The defense called on no witnesses and concluded that Joshua may have committed a monstrous act, but he is not a monster. He continued that there was no doubt Joshua killed Maddie. That was not in dispute. What was in dispute was what he was guilty of. The defense argued that Joshua was not guilty of premeditated murder, telling the jury, the state wants to tell you that Joshua Phillips was a monster, but the evidence shows he is not a monster. Regardless of your verdict, Mr. Phillips has essentially forfeited his life. Claiming that Josh's actions were not planned, the defense requested that the jury find him guilty of a lesser charge, such as manslaughter. The defense stated that Joshua panicked when presented with a situation which was unfolding and he was worried about. He was worried about his father arriving home at the same time Maddie was crying and in their yard. The defense stated it had to be a product of panic. What we certainly have is manslaughter under the law. The jury took just a little over two hours to reach a verdict. Joshua Phillips was found guilty of first-degree murder. Because he was a minor at the time, he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. If he was 16 years old, he would have received the death sentence. After Josh was sentenced, Maddie Clifton's case appeared on the show 48 Hours, which brought more knowledge from the case to the public. According to the prosecution, some evidence was ruled as inadmissible and so could not be presented in court. In the half hour before Maddie's murder, it was revealed that Josh was looking at violent, pornographic websites on his home computer. It is speculated that this behavior may have provided some sort of explanation or motive for the crime. Another piece of evidence which was ruled inadmissible was scans from a neurologist 
showing bilateral lesions on the frontal lobe of Josh's brain, which are associated with panic and impaired judgment, which I am not sticking up for Josh in any way when I say this, but it is surprising that the judge ruled these scans as inadmissible, considering this could have had an impact on the outcome of the trial. A brain lesion is damaged brain tissue, which is sometimes treatable, but can be permanent and can be caused from injury or from disease. Usually bilateral lesions produce more significant deficits. There has also been a distinction between left and right frontal lesions. Left lesions are associated with depression-like symptoms and right-sided lesions are associated with mania. With this description, it appears that it probably would not have affected Josh's actions and therefore should probably be considered inadmissible evidence. If his scans would have shown that he had ventromedial orbitofrontal lesions, these types of lesions cause impulsive, unrestrained behavior and possibly dangerous decisions. So if the judge had a medical examiner study those scans, I guess he would have considered that inadmissible evidence seeing as how the bilateral lesions aren't as serious as the ventromedial lesions. While Joshua sat in prison serving his sentence, the pain he inflicted on the Cliftons continued. Steve and Sheila Clifton started to drift apart as they found themselves grieving in different ways. Jessie Clifton stated that her mother seemed more the type to want to talk about it with her husband, while Jessie's father just didn't want to discuss it at all. Everyone grieves in different ways, and for the Cliftons, the loss of a child showed them this difference. The couple who met in high school, who were together for 30 years and married for 25, eventually divorced. While the Cliftons lost the most from Josh's actions, they were not the only ones who lost something that day. Melissa and Steve Phillips also lost their son. Melissa would keep so much guilt from her son's decisions, which why wouldn't she? As a parent, it is your job to make sure you raise functioning adults. But when something like this happens, even though it is way out of your control, the parent always blames themselves, which really she shouldn't. He was old enough. He was a big boy. He, he was old enough to know the difference between right and wrong. There were times where people recognized Melissa and would ask her, you know, are you Josh's mom? She would want to lie and say that she was not Josh's mom, but chose against lying in settings such as churches. But instead of being berated and accused and just being treated disgustingly, she was welcomed with kindness. People would hug her. They would, you know, just sympathize with her. Jessie Clifton had even stated that after Josh was sent to prison, she would help Melissa carry groceries into her home. In the end, it is bad enough for her to have to suffer the choices her son made. It is also punishment enough that she was the one who found poor Maddie stuffed under the waterbed. On June 27th, 2000, 
Melissa suffered another tragedy when her husband, Steve Phillips, died in a car accident. But many wondered how Josh could participate in the efforts to find Maddie. How could he sleep in his bed knowing she was under it? He would later claim that he spent the week living in denial, saying, I was putting myself in a fantasy world that nothing had happened. That was my defense mechanism for everything when I was a kid. Josh continued to make appeals. His first was in 2002, but the Florida 2nd District Court of Appeal upheld his conviction. Melissa Phillips started the process of searching for a new trial for her son in December 2004. She claimed that his young age at the time of the murder should have carried more weight in his sentencing. In November 2005, the Supreme Court of Florida set a hearing to discuss whether Phillips should receive a new trial. However, it appears nothing came from this. By 2008, two of the officials who were the most responsible for Josh's life sentence stated that they were having second thoughts about handing a life sentence without the possibility of parole to a 14-year-old. Admitting that they regret not offering Josh a second-degree murder plea, which would have given the judge more wiggle room during sentencing. Which I found it kind of interesting that they kind of regretted their decision. Because at that time, I mean, it was pretty bad. That was a pretty bad case, you know. Nowadays, it's almost like you hear about these cases every day. But back then... It was almost unheard of. So I think I think the punishment kind of fit the crime. Considering that it was, you know, the late 90s, I think the punishment kind of fit the crime. I don't know how I feel about any of it, really, because it's, it's interesting. You don't know what was going through his mind. But also, you know, an 8-year-old didn't even really get to live her life before it was just taken away from her, you know? So it is kind of a conundrum. So another opportunity arose for Josh to get out of prison in 2012 when the Supreme Court of the United States case of Miller v. Alabama ruled that sentencing juveniles to mandatory life in prison without parole is unconstitutional. In November 2015, Josh's attorneys started considering this case as a basis to file a resentencing hearing. By September 2016, Josh's attorneys were able to successfully appeal the court and he was granted a new sentencing hearing, which was held in June 2017. Maddie's family attended this new hearing, requesting that Josh's sentence remained upheld. Jesse Clifton was terrified that her sister's murderer would walk free, saying, She doesn't get a chance to walk on this earth again, so why should he? In December 2019, the Florida 1st District Court of Appeal upheld the life sentence, saying it will be reviewed again and could be modified in 2023 based on demonstrated maturity and rehabilitation. The court addressed the impact the crime had on the victim's family and the community, citing that the way this murder and surrounding circumstances rocked the victim's family and this community is unmatched 
in the modern history of Jacksonville. The court determined that the crime did not reflect the normal signature of youth such as recklessness. Instead, his actions were calculated, sexually motivated, and a heinously violent act. They also noted that Joshua went to great lengths to conceal the crime. The court stated, The facts demonstrate the brutality of the murder of Maddie Clifton. Her death was not accidental, it was intended. Her death was not quick or painless, it was long and agonizing. These facts also highlight disturbing aspects of defendant's behavior. 1. The callousness and ruthlessness he demonstrated in the murder itself. 2. The cool, calm, and collected manner in which he carried on life, even helping in the search. And 3. The fact that he slept on top of her body for six days. All of these actions indicate to the court the existence of something far more than mere immaturity, impetuosity, or the inability to assess consequences. Joshua Phillips remains incarcerated at Cross City Correctional Institute in Florida. I think Josh's fate may have been sealed that day when he chose to murder Maddie. Even though his age could be the subject of argument, the fact remains that he still took a child's life in the most brutal way imaginable. It wasn't quick and painless, it was long and suffering. And the circumstances surrounding the event just do not add up, for me at least. For instance, Josh claims that Maddie came to him to play baseball, but another neighbor stated she saw him creep up on her. There was no injury indicating that she was hit in the face with a baseball. And above all, what kind of person believes murdering anyone will keep them out of trouble with their parents. The logic and events just don't add up. So what did you think of today's case? Do you think Joshua Phillips should remain in prison or have a shot at living on the outside? Do you think his actions were premeditated? Let me know your thoughts in the comments. Don't forget to like and subscribe or follow to stay up to date with the latest from me, Tams and Lee. I know this episode was kind of short and I'm sorry about that, but you are not going to want to miss the next episode. So thank you for listening and for your support. Stay safe and I will see you for the next episode. Bye!